0: This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.
1: Good morning, everyone, or afternoon if you're somewhere besides the West Coast right now. Um, It's really lovely to be here with everyone. My name is Pilar Jefferson, I'm a PhD student in the Ethnic Studies program um, at UC Berkeley. I'm originally from Nipmuc and Pecumtuk land, also known as Western Massachusetts, um, and I've been living and working here in Ohlone land for the last six months or so. I'm very excited to be here this morning with all of you for this series, um, where this is the third talk in a series of conversations we've been doing this summer called Looking Back, Moving Forward, the Hearst Museum and Indigenous Communities communities, um, conversations that focus on the history and future of the Hearst Museum and UC Berkeley's relationship with local Indigenous communities. Featuring speakers from within and beyond the campus, the series centers on ongoing projects leveraging UC's institutional power, historically a source of harm, to further Indigenous sovereignty and environmental justice. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that the University of California Berkeley and the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology occupy the territory of Huichin, the ancestral and unceded land of Chichen'o-speaking Ohlone people, the successors of the historic and sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to the Muwekma Ohlone tribe and the familial descendants of the Verona Band. Every member of the UC Berkeley community has benefited and continues to benefit from the use of and occupation of this land since the institution's founding in 1868. We have a responsibility to acknowledge and make visible UC Berkeley's relationship to native peoples. Today I'm so excited to welcome you all to this program. Um, which is about Indigenous student perspectives on the Hearst Museum and UC Berkeley's uh, relationship with Indigenous people more broadly. Today, I am joined by the hosts of the Native American Student Development Office's podcast, Indigenous United, Um, two of the three hosts, um, the first being Atea Sespuch, who uh, is a, a graduate student in the Environmental Science Policy and Management Department. Atea, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Sure. Mike, Nunai Nia Atea Sespooch, Nunai Nunia Yokopi Wokoshke, Nunai B. Kitty Hollow, Nunai mu Larry Sespooch, Nunai Gaguchin, Maud Hollow, Nunai Kunuchin, Anton Hollow igep. Nunai Khich, Francis Sakaku igep. Nunai Kunuch, Homie Sakaku igep. Nuga Wadur River Nuch woke Yampataka wok Lakota, Nuga Berkeley Kanivet, Hi everyone, I am Atea Sespuch. I introduced myself in the Northern Ute language. I am Northern Ute from the Uenta Ore Reservation. On my paternal side, on my maternal side, I am a Citiboyne and Lakota enrolled at the Fort Peck Reservation in Montana. Um, I introduced myself naming my parents and my grandparents, which is important to demonstrate the relationships I have to my communities, and so that my community can can situate me within themselves and know who I'm related to. Um, I am also a third-year PhD student in environmental science policy and management, um, where I study the complex and contradictory relationships between oil and gas development, environmental justice, and tribal sovereignty back home on the Northern Ute Reservation in Northeastern Montana. Um, Outside of the academy, I have been taking Ute language classes that have been been offered uh, by my tribe back home uh, for the last year. That's where I learned to introduce myself, and I'm hoping to base my research within Ute epistemologies. So learning the language is really important for that, and I'm also getting a designated emphasis in Indigenous language. With revitalization here at Berkeley. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Atea. And our other um, speaker for today, co host of the podcast, is Sierra Ed, who's in the Department of Ethnic Studies with myself. Sierra, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, thank you, Pilar. Sierra um, Ed. Um, And like Atea, I introduced myself in my native language. I am from the Navajo Nation, and I uh, originally am from like the Four Corners area of Colorado. I grew up in a town called Durango, and I am currently a fourth year PhD student in ethnic studies. Uh, in the ethnic studies department at UC Berkeley, and my research is largely related to indigenous gender and sexuality, sound studies, visual culture, and also digital media and technology.
1: Thanks for joining us, Sierra. So, to kick us off for today, tell us about the podcast. How long have each of you been working on it? Um, and uh, how long has it been going on in general?
3: Yeah, so I can go uh, begin and just introduce. Uh, the podcast, it's called Indigenous United, and it is a student um, internship that is sponsored by the Native American Student Development Program here at UC Berkeley, and it is designed for Native students to gain media experience and sort of jump into the podcasting world. Um, And in general, it highlights Indigenous issues on and off campus and uh, we, Atea and I, and Alexi, um, is the, or we're all the current co-hosts, but they sort of change with, um, each iteration of students.
2: Yeah. So the podcast has been going on for four years. Um, and myself, Sierra and Alexi Sagona are the fourth iteration of hosts. Um, but I've been hosting it for the last two years, um, It was originally started by Drew Woodson, uh, an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley, and then next it was hosted by Cheyenne Tex, another undergrad student, and then um, two years ago, myself, Alexi, and uh, Fallon Burner kind of took over and have been hosting it for the last two years uh, with this past academic year, uh, Sierra Joining the team and Fallon graduating and leaving, um, you can. Thanks so much, Katie, for uh, putting the uh, link to our SoundCloud in the chat, so you can find us there on the SoundCloud. Um, we're also recently on Apple Podcasts, so you can find us at Indigenous United Podcast there, um, and we're also on Instagram at Indigenous United underscore. So you can find us there. Please listen and follow us.
1: Yeah, I would highly encourage that if you haven't listened to the podcast in preparation for coming to this conversation, you definitely do so afterwards. It was super enlightening, and we're very excited to get a chance to dig a little bit deeper um, into the episodes that you did. So you did a series, a series of three conversations that are about NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and the Hearst Museum in particular. Could you tell us a little bit about that series and how it came about?
3: Um, Yeah, so this Uh, series was inspired by um, us sort of just talking and thinking about what is sort of local, um, local issues on campus. And one of the things that has been consistent um, within like Berkeley's history is the presence of the Hearst and its relationship with NAGPRA. And um, for me, I was kind of already aware of the UC school system having a sort of uh, not as great like relationship or like history of implementing NAGPRA. Um, I was first aware of like UC Davis having like a big collection and I didn't know uh, about Berkeley's collection. um, And it is actually like the worst in the UC system uh, of implementing NAGPRA. So I think just given that, Uh, like fact in the situation. We thought that this needed a deeper dive into sort of understanding the how and why this happened. Um, And yeah, Tia, do you have anything to add? Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, So we knew that there were, you know, thousands of ancestors being held by the Hearst. And We also knew that um, NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, um, that's what we'll be calling NAGPRA from now on, so that's the acronym, Um, but that it was passed in 1990 and that it required institutions to complete inventories of What they were, what Native American belongings or ancestors that they were holding, and also to repatriate them, to give them back to the Indigenous communities that they belong to so that they can be properly buried. Um, And so, knowing that and knowing how many thousands of ancestors that the Hearst had, we wanted to know how that happened. How were they, how was the Hearst not returning these ancestors? How did the collection grow to be over 9,000? We just had a lot of questions, and a lot of the other students we talked to really didn't know the history either. We all knew that there were thousands, but we didn't know how how that had happened, how that had came to be. Um, So that was what we were really interested in digging into for the podcast. So we have three episodes. Um, The first is about NAGPRA's history, because we thought it was important to learn about you know what is the law? What what does the law require? Uh, so we did an interview with Shannon O'Lachlan, um, who is on the National Negpra uh, Committee, and then in the next episode we talked. We looked at implementation. How is Negpra implemented? What exactly are institutions supposed to be doing um, in accordance with the law? And we did that episode with an interview with Melanie O'Brien, who's the National NAGPRA uh, Director. Um, so she was really helpful for kind of digging into the nuts and bolts of what NAGPRA actually, NAGPRA implementation really looks like. Um, and then the last episode is Sierra and I, and it's based on archival research and interviews that we. Did with folks that didn't want to go on the record. Um, and so that's the episode where we're really telling the history of the Hearst um, based on information we could find. Uh, so we didn't have a lot of time to dedicate to this, but we we tried our best as best as we could to uh, figure out this history and, and to tell it uh, in the third episode.
1: Thank you you both mentioned kind of having some knowledge of the Hearst before you came to campus or maybe like shortly after joining the campus community, could you speak a little bit more to like what you knew about it when you first came to Cal or if that was kind of on your radar at that moment?
3: Um, Yeah, sure. I, uh, As I mentioned, I think I was first aware of UC Davis um, having a big uh, like collection. And I um, just in general was, pretty unfamiliar with the UC schools um, before I came here, but I feel like Berkeley has a reputation outside of the Bay of being like a pretty liberal school. So I was pretty surprised by it not like having a good record of NAGPRA implementation and like uh, repatriating objects. Um, and I did my undergrad grad um, at Brown University. And something I just like sort of knew in general uh, based on that experience was that like institutional museums have like a very extractive power dynamic um, with native peoples. And so I wasn't surprised like upon hearing the um, the statistics and like the numbers of thousands of um, unrepatriated um, objects and remains. and. I think I just saw parallels between um, one library in particular, it's called the John Carter Brown Library um, in Providence at um, at Brown University. And they sort of had a specialized collection of like new world exploration. And it was basically a lot of like writings and maps of um, North and South America. And I think the first time it kind of resonated with me that like, my, who I am, like, as an Navajo person was most reflected in, like, the archives when, um, like, I was in a class and we went to visit um, the museum and they pulled out a map of the Southwest and I think some Navajo documents or something. And I was just, like, I guess it just really sunk in how museums uh, understand, like, Native people as like objects of study and like really approach it through a scientific lens. So I think like that experience was just reiterated with like the Hearst Museum. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like in my studies, I try to um, think about like how history is like a lot of times based in like historical memory and narrative and how, um, yeah, so I think there's just like a lot of patterns that repeating like wherever you go Um, and yeah.
1: That's a really great point, Mm Sierra. I think it's really interesting to think about how when we treat you know, any art, artifact or object mm-hmm. that is in the collection of a museum as a, something of scientific study, as opposed to something that has a narrative, has a history, has a connection, then it really changes the way that we think about the people uh, and the communities that are connected to those things. And that's definitely an experience that I've had in history museums, both in at, you know, colleges and universities and in the larger world in general. So thank you for making that point. i do you have anything to add about what you knew about the Hearst before you came to campus or what you learned when you were, you you know early on in the student
2: here at Berkeley? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, Sierra mentions being at Brown and, and, and kind of knowing about this history at her undergrad. Um, I went to a really small liberal arts college, uh, the Evergreen State College, um, and they have a longhouse. They don't have a museum, they don't have any ancestors. Um, they have a really vibrant, you know, native arts community that's fostered in the longhouse. So um, yeah, coming to Berkeley. I So I didn't know um, about the number of ancestors held by the Hearst when I was looking into grad schools and even when I accepted. Um, I actually learned about it about two months in uh, to my first semester and You know, it was really hard because um, I was having a really difficult time. You know, I I moved to Berkeley from the reservation and I had been surrounded by family and community and there were Native people, like Native people were the majority in every room I was in. Um, And so it was really hard to transition to Berkeley and to not have any space on campus to see another Native person. Um, And so I was feeling really isolated. and then, when I heard um, about the number of ancestors being held, it was like, oh, wow um yeah this this violence is is really palpable um, for me as a native student uh, being on campus um, and I wasn't super surprised because you know we know as a native person, I think your experience is just expecting institutions and the government and you know everything to be." Um, Anti-indigenous and and constantly trying to replace and eliminate the indigenous. Um, so I wasn't surprised, and when I learned it, I just kind of made a note, okay, avoid the hearst, you know, maybe don't don't try and um, go around that building. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of what I knew.
1: And and you are both very clear in the podcast about how painful this is, and I and I want to you know acknowledge that this is really painful, and and thank you for both you know being willing to share your stories about it because it's really hard stuff to talk about, um, and it's to, things that you know we hopefully we are actively trying to, to change, to, to change on campus, and I know that there is movement towards that, Um, but it's important to recognize that history, too, so can you talk, tell us a little bit about the episode, about the Hearst specifically, and maybe, you know, what surprised you in making this series, Um, what surprises came up in the conversations you had?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think for me, I just sort of in general, I knew it was sort of bad, but hearing historically where things went wrong were most surprising for me so for example uh I learned in like the 19 between the 1930s and like 50s the collections were just like open to the public um to non-researchers and um they didn't keep track of like the remains and artifacts if they were loaned out uh so for example like overseas or to other institutions um they just like didn't keep record and um that's how they lost a lot of um items and uh yeah like just had missing things um and just this history of like records not being kept and things not being cared for properly, to me, just uh, conveyed a lack of effort on the university's part and, like, the individuals who were um, put in positions to maintain these objects. So I think just that, like, basic treatment of these um, items and remains as objects and not, like, human remains of, like, uh, communities and how uh, just that, like, difference in how they're perceived was a big thing that resonated with me um also reframing like non-compliance um with nagpra as being like unlawful or like against human right law um because the framing of nagpra as a human right law is a big distinction that i think is very powerful um because it yeah it just shows like how the Uh, usual like excuse of um, or reason um, objects are not repatriated is because they're unidentifiable. And also just a a lack of understanding of like what sovereignty means um, and why uh, certain tribes are not um, treated as like legitimate because either they're not state recognized or federally recognized. And the concept of like recognition I think is something that is uh, like a colonial tool to sort of mark um, like what's real or like not real um, in terms of indigeneity. And I think that um, like being implemented, um, or I I saw it being like reflected in just the research that Ateah and I were doing of, um, I think it being connected to like the repeated like non-record keeping and uh, of or kind of misunderstanding um, and use of like what unidentifiable is, because in the interview with Shannon, we she says that um, all all is really needed to make something identifiable is like geographical. Um, attribution and there definitely is like geograph- geographical um, connections between the objects and um, like the local tribes. So I think there's just something else going on in terms of like why there are so many objects in the museum um, that are still not repatriated. Um, yeah and as, like, we've kind of been saying, is that a lot of this falls onto like anthropologists being the authorities rather than like Indigenous peoples themselves. Um, so I think that was just kind of something that was reoccurring for me and hard for me to like see not change over several years. Um, and it has been like about uh, 30 years since NAGPRA has been um, around.
1: Right, it's a law from 1990, so it's a long mm-hmm. time for, of non-compliance. Yeah, I think you mentioned a couple of points that I really think are so important to understanding kind of how all of these, these mismatched pieces come together and, and why it's um, now such a challenge um, and it's, you know, incorrect or like un, uh, partial record keeping <laughs> of the university, right, and of the museum itself. Um and then this not there's um with California native tribes there's a lot of um folks who were not recognized at previous times in the past, you know, by the state or even by the federal government. And that means that there's a, there's a hard time connecting those ancestors back to those communities because of the supposed legitimacy, right? And, you're, um, and you were talking about sovereignty and how that's where we should base all of these conversations, starting from indigenous people knowing about their own communities and knowing about their own ancestors, and then go from there. So yeah, thanks for bringing those points up. Uh, Atea, was there anything you wanted to add?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I just um, I want to read some of the basic facts because we knew that there were over, you know, we well, for me, I was like, okay, I've seen eight thousand. I've heard eleven thousand. Like what is like how many ancestors are actually there? Um, So in 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 doing this research, you know, we found out that. the Hearst is currently holding um, over nine thousand five hundred and ninety-four ancestors, and that's actually a, a, an undercount because um, oftentimes there could be more than one um, ancestor in a grave that was dug up, um, but they may be counted as only one. So that's, you know, that's the number that we found, but it's it's probably, you know, at least ten thousand, if not more. Um, And over 9,000 of those ancestors were taken from California, um, and more than 2,000 come from Alameda County alone. Um, And then in addition, the university holds over um, 122,000 sacred belongings and funerary objects. So um, yeah, like Sierra was talking about, and as many of you may know, the local tribes here are the Ohlone people, um, but they aren't federally recognized. So that's you know, 2,000 uh, ancestors that the university uh, sees as it being difficult to repatriate to that unrecognized tribe. However, when we talked to uh, both Melanie and Shannon, they said that um, federal and state recognition isn't required um, for repatriation. So, you know, we, we just found, um, we, we found all of the excuses that were used, and then in our interviews with people actually involved in the implementation of NAGPRA, we found out that a lot of those aren't true. Um, So that was really interesting. That was really enlightening. Um, And it was just also very interesting to know, you know, where, where all of these ancestors come from. So the majority, the vast majority are coming from here, this state. Um, But there were, um, I think it's like 24 that are from Utah and Colorado. um, And that's where my people are from. Uh, And so when I found that out, I, just kind of made it a little more real like oh wow I wonder if my ancestors are there are being held um and so that you know made the issue resonate on a deeper level for me um also in terms of how Ancestors and belongings were collected. um, We learned that in the 1800s, the university had an open call for the general public to go and collect, to dig up graves and collect ancestors and collect belongings and to bring them to the university. And so that was also a little more um, horrific. It, you know, it wasn't just anthropologists doing their science, um, but it was the general public. So, you know, settlers that probably hated natives um, were, you know, going and, and digging up our graves. And that was um, that was really hard to hear. That was really hard to learn. Um, and I also didn't realize that Berkeley had a national reputation for being so bad at repatriation. Um, both Shannon and Melanie, who we talked to we're very, you know, that work on the national level, we're very familiar with Berkeley. It's it's the third largest collection um, in the country. Um, so it's very well known, and folks that uh, work on NAGPRA you know all about the, the issues at Berkeley. Um, so that was interesting for me to learn. Um, and I also didn't realize just how fraught the history was, Um, you know, we learned about these different lawsuits and um, Senate hearings um, that happened. And it was just really fascinating to learn. Um, You know, there was a group of professors in the UC that um, when the national NAGPRA sent out clarification that all you needed to repatriate was the geographic location um, there was a huge pushback from professors in the UC. They actually filed a lawsuit that said um, that that you, uh, basically, they don't believe that local existing tribes are the current... Um, living relatives to the ancestors that they're studying. Um, So they don't believe there's any connection between living people today and the people that they're researching. And that's really problematic for a number of, on a number of levels, you know, I'm not even going to get into that, um, but that was, you know, learning about this, this, honestly, like a lot of drama um, that, that happened with NAGPRA was really fascinating Um, and, yeah, just the way that, um, you know, we looked at some, some of the Hearst reports from the 1990s and, and really saw the way that um, the museum constantly deprioritized NAGPRA. You know, the, the government would set a date, you need to have your inventories completed by this time, they would miss the deadline, miss the deadline, miss the deadline, because they just didn't, they just didn't care, um, and and they wanted to continue researching <laughs> you know, so I, I also learned that students and professors were were actively using these ancestors in their coursework, in their research, and, and they were doing that for, you know, and so they didn't want to let them go. They didn't want to return them to the ground, return them to their people, and so, yeah, those were all um, really horrific, but a lot of the interesting things that we found.
1: Yeah, and I think that, you know, finding all of this information and doing that institutional research can be a real challenge too. And I I heard that you guys had some challenges when when doing this process. Can you talk us a little bit through, you know, how you went about doing the the historical research that went into this, um, what things you were trying to focus on and and the difficulty of it? Because I think museums in general today are being asked for transparency in a way that a lot of museums are not used to doing, and the Hearst Museum is definitely one of those. And so, um, as a part of this, we're thinking about transparency and how the museum can become more transparent for the future. So how was how researching for you two and how uh, what challenges did you come up with?
3: Yeah, thanks for that question. I think the part of the reason why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place was because the lack of transparency and like not being able to easily find um, this information, uh, at, at Berkeley as a student, um, or if you're just a person in the community who's not an academic person, this should this information should be out there and available, um, but it wasn't, and a lot of it uh, we came to sort of realize was that it is wrapped up in, like, inter-institutional, like, bureaucracies and like sort of the um, turnover of different people on different committees and like reports. And, um, and it's hard to find uh, like a solid um, perspective that has been around for um, throughout the like 30 years of events since NAGPRA. Um, so I think what we wanted to do was have uh, and center indigenous voices so we looked around for like professors native staff and alumni and i think uh what like we found surprising was that some of uh the people like didn't want um their like names to be used or like they would uh, agree to interview us uh, interview with us but um like didn't want to be sort of um have, like receive consequences for speaking against uh, Berkeley's like implementation. So I think that was um, a flag that went up for us of just, uh, I guess, realizing that it is much more like interpersonal and there are a lot of like politics around um, how NACPRa is being dealt with. Um, so I think finding people, uh, speakers who are, who were comfortable about speaking um you know, their truth about like their experiences with NAGPRA was difficult. So um, yeah, I think that is one thing uh, I wanted to say. And then also how uh, the two people that we actually interviewed were not um, from like, uh, like the Berkeley context, they were um, like speaking broadly about like the national NAGPRA. Um, But it was interesting because Berkeley still came up because as Atea mentioned, it is nationally known as, like, a problem here.
1: And I believe there's a California state NAGPRA law that was passed in 2018 in part to, to you know, force Berkeley okay. into compliance. So there's a lot of that going on. I think, you know, what you just said also speaks to the power of Berkeley as an institution and the fact that individuals might have a hard time um, feeling, like, safe having their voices heard because of because of the institutional power because this is such a you know a renowned and uh university with a long history of noncompliance and it might be hard to to get those voices heard yeah atea yeah.
2: yeah and and a lot of the people that were pushing back are still in positions of power and so that was also i i think a part of the hesitancy um that that people had to speak about this issue
1: Right. But like not talking about it isn't going to move anything. Right. Uh, I think a lot of the secrecy is not going to, to change the status quo, as it were. And there needs to be a, a, we need to be able to have these conversations in public spaces, so, which is why I'm, I'm so grateful to the two of you for being here, because it's, you know, one step in, on a very long path to, to making things right. Um, so what recommendations would you all give other students who might be interested in doing this type of research who might hear about what's happening at Berkeley and want to make some changes in their time as students at the university?
3: Um, well, definitely listen to our podcast. We intended it to be a community resource for people um, and yeah, find at least um, some some resource that will like sort of run through a timeline. Um, I also know the Hearst is working on a graphic um, like resource for their website that will hopefully be available for people. Um, but also finding and supporting uh, Native efforts, Native student efforts on campus, and just practicing allyship because um, what we've been seeing repeated, repeating throughout like the history is that Native people um, often devote a lot of uh, labor and like research into these um, committees uh, and they're often the same uh, individuals doing it over and over again and spread then across campus. So um, yeah, just getting to know the Native groups on campus, Native professors and uh, supporting the work that they're doing um, and Also, uh, having increasing visibility in some way, Um, I'm thinking again to my undergraduate university and they had like a monument um, for acknowledging their ties to like slave trade. And I think um, if more schools recognize their complicity and like upbringing in colonialism and sort of uh, uh, visibly like acknowledge indigenous people, on campus is really powerful um, because, yeah, I think I was telling Atea how hearing, I guess, about this history and really feeling like the violence from the Hearst Museum and it just being like a building that if you don't know about this history, it's just another building that you walk by. Um, So I think the ways that it's kind of just like um, normalized and ingrained in the uh and I guess like what is normalized is like indigenous erasure so it trying to find ways to increase visibility of um indigenous peoples in any way would be helpful
2: yeah I think um advice I would give to other students interested in doing this work um you know I think first just a uh warning, I guess, that, um, you know, be, beca- when we heard that so many people were hesitant to, to speak out about this because it had impacted their careers in academia, it really made me pause, and it, and it made me wonder, you know, I, I am interested in pursuing a, a, a future as a professor, and and I was really hesitant, like, I wonder if speaking out against this issue, speaking out against this really influential, powerful institution, is going to negatively impact me. You know, maybe I'll be labeled as a problem maker and that will impact me when I go to the job market. So, um, you know, I, I would just warn folks to take that into consideration. Um, you know, I think if you don't want to go into academia, then go for it. Um, but but yeah, just to be cognizant um of, of some of the impacts of, of doing this kind of work. Um and in terms of sources, uh, the Daily Cal was a really helpful source for us because it's so focused on Berkeley and um, it's, it's run by students. So I felt like they had a good finger on the pulse of local activism and, um, and where Native student perspectives and, and just, yeah, the perspectives of current students. So that was a really helpful resource uh, for others that might be interested in, in looking at the history of Berkeley specifically
1: thank you both for, for speaking up about this because I think that visibility is such an important thing, but it can also then make people vulnerable, right? Being visible can also lead to vulnerability and to being targeted. Um, and, you know, we see that happening on campuses across the country for, you know, people who are speaking out about the legacies of slavery um, on those campuses, um, like Sierra was mentioning, and is definitely also true for, for legacies of colonialism and colonial violence too. Um, but again, there's nothing that can change unless we make these things visible to people Um, I do want to plug the timeline that Sierra mentioned. As a part of this uh, series, we are also... actively trying to build a timeline that we will be able to see on the Hearst Museum's website of the history of the Hearst Museum's relationship with Indigenous people. Um, It's not going to be a complete timeline, right? We can't do put every single point of everything that's happened because this museum's been around since 1901. So it's got a long history, but significant moments and also resources where you can do more research if you want to on your own, um, just to make sure that that institutional knowledge stays somewhere that it is somewhere that is accessible that it is easy for people to find at least as a starting point and then do more of their research on their own because you're right you know colleges and universities what happens is people come in they spend their time there and then they move on and sometimes the information that they had gets lost in the process of them moving on to the next thing so really trying to keep an archive of what's happened and has happened at the museum is very important. Uh, I want to also say that this is a, might be a good moment for the audience to start posting questions. I have one more question for the two of you before we move into the Q&A moment. Um, and, you, you know, Sarah, you just mentioned allyship right? Um, but what does that mean to you? What can people do, non-Native people who might be in our audience today, um, to be better allies for Indigenous students, Indigenous professors, Indigenous staff on campus um, to make sure that these things get done in the way they need to?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think just in general, at helping um, Indigenous efforts, as I mentioned, and advocate for funding for repatriation because a lot of, because it's so institutionalized, it um, has to do a lot lot with funding um, for the creation of um, like committees and things like uh, labeling and doing like the sort of physical work of like what that looks like. Um, And yeah, and I think some efforts that are currently going on in the native um, community is uh, advocating for like a community center like a physical space um admitting more students because one fact that um, one of our uh, interviewees said was that there are more native ancestors at Berkeley than there are native students and that's um definitely true and I think that like I just like sitting with that um and like understanding the like microaggression And like the violence of that is a lot. So I think um, doing more work to support like the admission of native students and um, native like presence on campus. Um, Also, if you have the capabilities to uh, be a a donator, um, you can withhold your donations from certain um, institutions. uh, to sort of pressure them to be like hey you need to uh look into repatriation more or like um yeah i guess just like withholding uh funding is a good way to pressure institutions into action
1: right i mean so much of the university you know the work that is done here is through grants and donations and you know um a fundraising efforts of various sorts. So definitely using the the money that you have, you know, using your wallet <laughs> as a, a source of activism is really important.
2: Yeah, and you know, to that effect, it's um, it's going to cost a lot of money to repatriate these thousands of ancestors. So um, you know, if you are donating, maybe specifically earmark your money um, to go toward repatriation and go toward returning these ancestors home. Um, And if you aren't living in the Bay Area or you're located somewhere else or you donate to a different institution, um, we uh, encourage you to use a link um, that we're putting in the chat uh, to look up what other institutions are holding. Um, This is the National NGPRA link um, and I think you can click on inventories um, and then you can search different institutions to find out exactly um, what they're holding. So we encourage everyone to just increase your awareness of, of what museums around you, museums that you um, visit, what they're holding, and um, encourage them to fully repatriate everything that they have. Um,
1: That's great. And, and it, I mean, that's part of what NAGPRA is. It's like making this information, trying to at least make this information as available as possible. But of course, there are still bumps in the road. So I thank you, Katie, for posting that link in the chat. It's a really important one. And I encourage everybody, whether you're in the Bay or somewhere else, to look at, you know, what institutions around you are holding ancestors in their collections. So we've got a couple of questions in the Q&A right now. The first one, actually, I can answer, which is from Deborah Stein, um, about where this information is archived. And the answer is, right now, it isn't really archived anywhere. (laughs) Um, And that is the challenge that Sierra and Atea kind of came up against when doing this research, is it's very scattered. Um, And so part of this project that we're working on is to make sure that there, even if there isn't one source for all this information, because there's a lot of history at this institution, at least that there is a starting place that is on the Hearst website. So that's what the timeline is going to be, um, and hopefully that will be launched in the next, you know, within the next three to six months or so. Yeah, we're working, looking forward to that. Um, the second one is from Leslie, and it's actually a reassurance for Atea um, that employers will look favor, some employers will look favorably upon people who speak out. And I hope that that is true <laughs> moving into the future because it is super, super important um, to make sure to, to support these efforts. And then the last question from Peter Black, are there any Ohlone or Coast Miwok students active in the repatriation of their ancestors at UC Berkeley? Atea or Sierra, do you know if there are um, Ohlone classmates of yours who are, or Coast Miwok who are working on these efforts?
2: Yeah. So our other co-host is Alexi Sagona, um, co-host of the podcast. Um, and he's not here today, but he is um, Ohlone. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of the band that he is. Muekma. It's from like, huh? Is it Muekma? Muekma, yes. yes. Um, down towards San Jose. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he is, and his uncle is the chairman of the tribe. And I believe if they are actively involved in uh, repatriation uh, at Berkeley. And then um, Peter Nelson is, is a professor that was recently hired in my department, um, and he's Coast Miwok and uh, actually got his degree in archaeology here at UC Berkeley um, and has been actively involved uh, in in repatriation and this issue at the Hearst. So, um, yes, those are the folks that I know of.
1: Yeah. And I also wanna loop back to something Sarah said earlier because I think it's important too, that like, of course, you know, the indigenous and native people who are on campus want to be in, in connection with their ancestors and helping as much as possible. But it's also the job of non-indigenous people to pick up some of that slack, right? Because it, it's not something that, you know, one community can do on their own. It's something that really needs as many voices as possible. So it shouldn't just be reliant on the indigenous students to do all of this work or faculty or staff whoever it is. Um, The final conversation in this series that we're having this summer um, will be a conversation with Tom Torma, who um, heads up the NAGPRA office here on campus. So if you have more questions about NAGPRA at Cal specifically, um, he is a great person to talk to. And um, we will make sure to send to everyone who's at this talk the link to that one as well when registration is open so you all know. So we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, I encourage folks to post any more questions that they might have. But um, if we don't, Sierra and Attea, do you either have any like last thoughts or things that you want to share? Maybe hopes for the future or uh, th- other things that you're working on on campus right now that um, the people who are joining us might be able to support? Um, yeah, I can jump in.
2: Um... You know, something that I hope for the future is that just every ancestor makes it back home and gets a chance to be loved and cared for by their community and return to the earth where they belong. Um, And I know it's going to cost like over a million dollars to make that happen. Um, And, you know, the university has a lot of things that need funding. Um, And because this issue has been ongoing for 30 years, I I'm a little skeptical that the chancellor will um, choose to prioritize this issue. Um, so if you have any leverage, if you're in a position of power to um, help persuade the chancellor to dedicate funding toward this issue, um, I would just encourage folks to do that um, and to do it as soon as possible um, because it's 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 been way too long uh, that these ancestors have been violated uh, in this way. So. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah and also like if uh if you don't have the capabilities of like funding or donating um you can also just like raise awareness and like make some noise about this issue because um I think uh in one of our like previous conversations it can like pointed out to me and I definitely agree that students have some of the most like uh ability to make bring change and Uh, have momentum to things within the university setting. So I think that's important to just um, keep this uh, knowledge like out there and share um, with people. And also, uh, yeah, as Indigenous students um, or an Indigenous person, I feel like wherever you go, there's um, Indigenous land. And like, at least in North America like where we are in the United States there's um indigenous communities and nations out there so like finding um wherever you are like finding information about like your history um and understanding like where you're located what is the place's um history and like what happened there because um I think you'll be surprised to like figure out that like street signs that you kind of just like thought were named that way were like native words or like things like that um so yeah I think that's really important um and also yeah one thing I I learned was that not only like in Berkeley but like in Oakland there's the museum um Oakland Museum that has human remains and or uh repatriatable objects um I'm not sure if they're remains but So there's other museums that are local that um, say you're not part of like the Berkeley like university community and you're like in other parts of the bay uh, that maybe you want to like find out information about I think that's also a great way to support um, native issues.
2: Yeah, and I just wanted to also add, um, I heard from some local California natives, um, you know, that another way to support is, um, and in, in tandem with what Sierra was saying of, of look up, um, you know, whose land you're on, look up what their secret sites are, look up, um, you know, what, if they're possibly in threat of, of development. Um, and specifically, if you're in the Bay Area, you know, um, learning about shell mounds and helping to protect shell mounds here in the bay is is a big issue. Um, we all know that there's constantly development, um, and so yeah, just just being aware of of those. Um, I know Segorate, the Segorite Land Trust. Um, is another place that you can, um, it's run by local Ohlone folks. And it's, uh, I know the Shumi Land Tax Tax is a way to donate funding toward that organization and to help them in their work for um, food sovereignty, protection of shell mounds and sacred sites. Um, So that's yet another resource um, where you you can help donate if you're here locally in the Bay Area and you want to support um, local organizations.
1: This, this work is everywhere and it takes all of us. It's, it's really true. And thank you for you know, sharing those resources. I just want to point out a couple of things that Katie put in the chat that'll be really helpful. One of them is the nativeland.ca map, which is not necessarily the most complete, but it is um, a helpful starting place for if you are interested and don't know whose land you're on, what Native Nations land you're on. Um, and then the next one is the for the Te Land Trust, which is doing a lot of really excellent work here in the, in the East Bay. Um, and someone posted a question in the chat about the West Berkeley Shell Mound. Um, Sogrete is a great place to look for information about the current efforts to um, save the West Berkeley Shell Mound and make sure that those ancestors are respected, which are right here in our in our own backyards, quite literally. Um, so I would definitely recommend checking them out. Um, Susan Edwards asked in the chat, if there's a fund at Berkeley for donating to repatriation, and I don't know if there is, that's a really good question. Yeah. Okay. We're getting a head shake from (laughs) it. So probably not at the moment.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know definitively, but I can definitely say in our extensive research and, you know, as someone that's been working with the Hearst, uh, as on a student committee. I, I haven't heard of any such fund, so I, I don't believe that exists, but that's a great idea.
1: Yeah, that's a great way, place to, to start, um, so maybe there's a way to, to make some sort of, um, fund for, through the development office here at UC Berkeley that can go directly to the, um, to the the repatriation efforts that are happening on campus. Because none of this happens without money. That's just the world that we live in right now. It can't happen without that. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Let's see, I think we're almost out of time. I wanna thank everybody so much for joining us. so our last conversation will hopefully be in August. We'll definitely send out information to all of the folks who are here today um, so that you can join us for that and keep posted. You know, this work is ongoing. Tay and Sierra are both still in their programs. So we'll be at, at Berkeley for a while yet. And so there's so much work, um, really incredible work that's happening on campus to support. So I encourage everybody to, to keep um, to keep posted on what's happening here on campus. Yeah, there are lots of... Uh, thank yous from in the chat. Um, Deb Stein is asking again, is there a Townsend Center working group around this? There is not at the moment, though there are always possibilities for that sort of thing in the future. I will say that we are partially um, funded this conversation series um, by the Townsend Center. So there's definitely um, space on campus for that sort of thing. Let's see. Yeah, Lauren is also um, pointing out that there aren't a lot of, um, there isn't a lot of funding for jobs in this. And this can be a huge job, right? Repatriating 10,000 ancestors um, is a huge job, and it's not going to be any one person who can do that all on their own. So there is definitely investment in also um, either volunteering or in having more staff members, hopefully staff members do like for people to get paid <laughs> to do this work on the UC Berkeley campus. Yeah, I, you, I go for it.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add. So, you know, you're going to hear from Tom Torma in, in your next session, but he's the only one he's there's only one staff member right now working on the nine thousand five hundred ancestors that need to be repatriated so yeah there obviously needs to be you know at least 12 you know 24 could really get this work done more quickly but as you're pointing out lauren um very very smartly there there isn't funding and i know i've been saying funding 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 but but yeah that just just to give the status of of berkeley's um repatriation committee of one
1: That's really important. It has to, you know, there has to be money as a part of the emphasis. It can't just be people raising their voices. There's got to be something behind it too. And so, hopefully, this can be the start of that. Um, Pam also asked about um, these talks being available at previous times to show folks. They'll be available um, by request to people who are here at this conversation, and then they'll also be available by request to um, professors and other folks on campus to use in their classrooms in the fall. So if you have any questions about that, you can reach out to the Hearst Museum, to to Katie Fleming in particular. I don't know, Katie, if you wanna put your email in the chat um, to uh, make sure that people can have access to these really important conversations for the future. All right, and Katie, I'm gonna turn it over to you now to to give our thank yous to our sponsors. Um, And and thank you again, Taya and Sierra for joining us. This was really wonderful.
4: Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to express my gratitude as well. Um, my name is Katie Fleming. I'm the gallery manager and education coordinator at the Hearst Museum of Anthropology. And I wanted to thank Pilar for the wonderful moderation of today's program and Atay and Sierra for sharing their perspectives. Um, and of course, we've been talking a lot about money and how important it is. So I wanted to take a moment to um, thank the sponsors of this series, the Townsend Center for the Humanities, the UC Berkeley Social Science Matrix, the Archaeology. Archaeological Research Facility and the Department of Anthropology at UC Berkeley. So we'll drop links um, in the chat for learning more about those organizations. And I wish everyone a wonderful rest of their day or evening. And thank you for being here. Um, And we hope to see you at our next program. And please feel free to follow up if you're interested in getting access to these videos. A link will be provided for temporary access tomorrow. Um, It'll be available to watch or rewatch for the next couple of days. And then it's by request after that. So Thank you, everyone. Thank you again, Atea and Sierra, and thank you, Pilar.
0: You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Also, check out another podcast of ours, Berkeley Voices, about the people who make UC Berkeley the creative, quirky, world changing place that it is. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.